through the book of Daniel. Today we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 7, if you'd like to open your scriptures to that passage. Also on the back of your weekend handout where it says late breaking news, there's an important timeline we're going to be referring to in our teaching session. I was 20 years old, two decades on this earth before I ever rode on a subway train probably says something to my small town upbringing. Where I grew up in West Texas, we never heard of subways. We went underground for oil. We went underground for water. And once I even went underground looking for a rattlesnake. But never went underground for transportation. So imagine my consternation when, at the age of 20, I found myself racing underground, riding in a subway through the darkness under the city, the metropolis of Sao Paulo, Brazil. My four friends and I had gone to Brazil for the summer. Uh, We were there to be uh, assistants to the missionaries in Sao Paulo. I don't know what we thought we would do. None of us spoke the language. None of us had ever traveled overseas. We had not eaten rice and beans, and we had never played football with any ball that was round. We were the greenest of gringos. And so when the missionary told us to run an errand for him and to do so, we would need to take the subway, I don't remember us expressing any Reluctance. I guess we figured out we would figure it. I guess we figured we would figure it out. We did figure out how to get on the subway. But once we were on the subway, we realized we had no clue how to know when to get off. The subway car was packed. We were standing in the aisle. We were holding those leather straps. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody else was calm. But we were anxious. I wondered, how's everybody so calm? Here we're racing in a bullet underground, and everybody's tranquil. They're reading books, they're dozing, they're reading magazines. We were beginning to panic. We were saying to one another, How do we get off this thing? When do we know when to get off? Does anybody know how to say help in Portuguese? (laughs) One kind Brazilian, English-speaking Brazilian, uh, overheard and perceived our anxiety. And he stood up and walked over to us, 
And he said, gringos? And we nodded. He said, lost? And we nodded. And we handed him the sheet of paper upon which the missionary had written the name of the station where we were to get off. At that point, the Brazilian did a wonderful thing. He pointed to a map that at that point we did not even know existed. But a map that ran along the inside of the subway car over the windows. Have any of you ever seen these maps? They're linear maps. It's a line. And on the line, there are what? Dots. And each dot represents a what? A stop or a station. And every station has a what? A name. You've all been on subways. And so if you know how the map works, you don't panic. So he showed us. First thing he did, he pointed and he said, you are here. He showed us where we were, and, and he said, you're soon to be, we'll soon be stopping here. And he said, where do you need to go? And he went down, I don't remember how many, but, you know, five or six stops. And he said, you will get off here. So at least we knew how many to count. Even if we didn't recognize the name, but he told us we would just by looking out the window, he said, you'll see the name on the wall, painted on the wall. So guess what we did? We relaxed because now we had a map. Everything changes once you have a map. The book of Daniel provides a map of God's timeline, God's plan for humanity. It is a core piece of scripture in the Bible. It provides a map. What I'm going to do today and over the next few weeks is unpack for us what I perceive to be this map. As we turn the page on Daniel chapter 7, we enter into the wild and wonderful world of biblical prophecy. No teacher has ever cracked the code on every element of prophecy and if you ever meet one who says he or she has go to a different teacher right it's prophecy so that by its nature means it has yet to happen but what we have are these big pictures these symbols these ideas that serve to give us signs in which God is saying okay this is next okay that happened oh we must be nearing the end so biblical prophecy works that way what I hope to do over the next few weeks is share with you my understanding of Daniel 7 through 12. And if and when you come to me and say, you know, I have a different understanding of Daniel 7 and 12, I'll say, that's awesome. When we get to heaven, we'll have a conversation. Because in heaven, there's a great room for Bible teachers. And we're all going to meet there and we're going to have a good laugh. But one thing's for sure, between now and then, we're going to give it our best shot right? And so that's what we're going to do. This timeline first appeared in Daniel chapter 2. Maybe you remember it. Although Daniel 7 through 12 is the primary section of prophecy in the book, really Daniel 2 is also a chapter of prophecy. And in Daniel chapter 2, we studied Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 
Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon who took Daniel and his friends captive in 605 B.C. Early in his reign, Daniel was asked to interpret the dream of this colossus that Daniel, I'm sorry, that Nebuchadnezzar saw. It was a huge statue. And this statue had four different levels to it. And we came to understand that this statue represented four coming ages. And these ages were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Each would supplant the other and occupy the same general geographical region. King Nebuchadnezzar also envisioned ten toes. And we came to understand that those ten toes represent a ten-nation federation that has yet to happen. He also saw an uncut stone. Does anybody remember who this uncut stone represents? Jesus Christ. He is uncut. He is the stone upon which we build our lives, the rock of ages, but uncut by human hands. And he will crash. He will collapse. He'll bring to an end those ten nations. That has not yet happened, but it will happen. If we were to take that statue and turn it sideways and set it on a timeline, we would actually have a calendar for the ages. Even more, we would begin to understand where we fit on that timeline. We are somewhere to the close of the age. Now, chapter 7 mirrors this prophecy. Chapter 7 picks up where chapter 2 left off. You might write that at the top of chapter 7. See chapter 2. <laughs> Because chapter 7 picks up where chapter 2 left off. Only in this case, the stratum of the statue is replaced with the four beasts. Now, just a heads up, this chapter moves quickly, and so will this message. Now, rather than give you an outline, I've given you a timeline. And take that timeline home with you. Tuck it in there in the book of Daniel. And I think over the next weeks and months and even years, you'll find that to be helpful. Let's pray, and then we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, have mercy on our teacher. His sins are many. Grant us understanding and wisdom. Through Christ we pray. And all the church said, Amen. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in the bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. So Nebuchadnezzar saw four nations represented by metals of decreasing value and strength. You're about to see that Daniel saw four nations represented by four beasts, increasing in ferocity, immorality, brutality, and depravity. Each would replace the other in the same geographical footprint. Beast number one, the first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. The first beast on the timeline represents the Babylonian kingdom. It was the first in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's the first in Daniel's vision. Now, this image fits. In fact, statues of winged lions guarded the gates of ancient Babylonian palaces. Even so, this kingdom did not survive. And there was before me a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth beneath, between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. So the second empire is depicted as a bear. It's less majestic 
than a lion, but every bit as brutal. So this fits the Medo-Persians, the next major kingdom. They conquered Babylon in less than a month. And the bear rising on one side seems to represent the imbalance between Persia and Medes because the Medes were lesser, the Persians were greater. But like other kingdoms, they were replaced. The subway train lunges forward. After that, I looked, and before me was another beast, one that looked like what? A leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads. It was given authority to rule. What differentiates a leopard from a lion and a bear? It's speed. A leopard is faster. What distinguished Alexander the Great from the Medes and Persians and the Babylonians? His speed with swiftness and the prowess of a cat, he conquered most of the civilized world from Macedonia to Africa and eastward to India. And just like the leopard had four wings and heads, Alexander the Great had four generals who assumed his uh, kingdom after he died at a young age. So the Greeks left their imprint on the history of the world, but that leopard was just a kitty cat compared to this fourth beast. After that, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. Three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had the eyes, uh, had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, this fourth beast has no counterpart in nature. And so it is so vile, so evil, it's just described as terrifying and frightening and very powerful. This is what we'll call the fourth beast kingdom it began with the roman empire in 241 bc and it grew without abatement for four centuries and when it began to decline it did so gradually stubbornly releasing its grip on the world now according to the prophecy it will in some way extend into the final days in the form of 10 nations now max where did you get the 10 nations I'm going to answer that question. But first, can we pause and observe something? We have caught up with the subway map. We have caught up with the subway map. What the Brazilian did for we gringos, God is doing for us. He's pointing at the map. He said, okay, now here's where you are in history. We have yet to see the ten-nation confederacy, so that's somewhere in the future. But we have seen the rise and fall of the other kingdoms. So though we don't know exactly how much time is left, we know that we're nearing the end. It's as if somebody has signaled the two-minute warning in the basketball game. It's as if somebody has announced, return your seats to the upright position, buckle your seatbelts, and once that announcement is given, what do we know? That we are nearing the end, and we can feel this airplane begin to nose downward. By the way, isn't it great, and isn't it kind of God to tell us where we are in history? Isn't it kind of God to care so much about us that he wants us to be able to see where we are in the flow of human events? Well, what happens next? 
It seems to me that the next subway station is going to have this sign on it, these words on it, Ten Nation Confederacy. The idea of a Ten Nation Confederacy or Federation emerges from where? Well, Daniel chapter 2 and the ten toes, and now Daniel chapter 7 and the ten horns. And then there's the appearance of a little horn, which emerges and uproots three others and then takes over. Now, I know this is odd language. What Max preach on today? Well, I don't know. He's talking about horns and bees. And I know it's odd language, but listen, in the Bible... When you see the word horn, just lift it out and replace it with the word ruler or king or authority. It's the same idea. In fact, we're going to see this word translated king in just a few paragraphs. So what the prophecy here is saying is that sometime in the future, there will be a ten-nation or ten-king confederacy. Ten presidents, ten dictators, I don't know. But a ten-nation ruler or confederacy or organization of some sort or union will come together. And out of these ten nations that take domination over the world, there will come one little horn. He will emerge as small, but he will rise up. He will be resisted by three. He will overcome those three, and then he will establish himself as the ruler of the world. Don't look at me like that. This prophecy is leading us in that direction. And just when we think, oh, now what, what in the world is he saying? Is this good news or bad news? Look what happens next, verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Whew, just in time. Just when we're getting a little bit anxious, a little bit troubled, here comes the Ancient of Days. Who is the Ancient of Days? God Almighty. He took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. <laughs> we just jumped to the end of the timeline. This is the coronation. We are seeing through the prophetic eyes of Daniel a new day and a final king. And he sits on the highest of thrones. He is the ancient of days. Only God is the ancient of days. Only God is ancient. He has never not been. He was, he is, he always will be. He predates time. He is not bound by time. He is ancient. And he is the ancient not of night, not of darkness, but the ancient of what? of light, of daytime, of hope, of illumination. He is pure like wool, a pure white like wool. He's righteous like fire. And the day is coming in which he will judge the impurities of the world and the evil of the world. The books will be opened. That is to say, a final judgment will be rendered. And this judgment will be upon a evil despot that surfaces right here in the seventh chapter of Daniel. Here's, here it is. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words who was speaking. The horn. There's that little horn. The horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast 
was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. God not only tells us where we are in history, he's kind enough to tell us the end of history. Lest we be too anxious as we're reading through these prophecies, he keeps telling us, I win in the end. I win in the end. Don't be troubled, but be prepared. But still, I win in the end. This evil ruler will be killed and his government will be destroyed. And then we get another vision. Verse 13 and 14, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Anyone want to guess who this is? This is Jesus Christ. And all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, or Jesus Christ approaches the triune God. And Jesus Christ is given authority, and it is announced before time. We see the end from the beginning. It is announced before time that he has been given authority. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. All these other dominions rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. The kings come and they go. But there is coming a king who will never leave. And there is coming a dominion that will never end. And that is the King Jesus Christ. And that is his dominion on this earth. If you believe that, say amen. Every earthly king is a wannabe. Every nation is on the clock. Only one king will reign. Only one king will endure. What do you think of this prophecy so far? Is your head spinning a little bit? Well, if you find it a little difficult to process, you're not alone. Guess who had a question? Anyone? Daniel. Daniel heard all this and he said, wait just a second. I love this. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast. Tell me a little bit more about that fourth beast, please. And the answer comes. The ten horns are, what did I tell you? The ten kings who will come from this kingdom... After them, another king will arise. He's different than the earlier ones. What's he going to do? He's going to subdue three kings. And he will speak against the Most High. He will oppress his holy people. He will try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, a time's and half a time. Now, look at this. What Daniel asks is, can we back up one station on the subway map? Can we just back up a little bit? He wants us to move from the coronation and look at this tribulation, this conflict between Satan and between the, what we're going to see as the Antichrist and God's people. This is the first time this discussion surfaces, the Antichrist and the tribulation. Now, we're going to look at this in detail in chapter 8. And then we're going to look at it again in detail in chapter 9. But for today, know this much. 
A ruler is coming that is, as the prophecy says, different from all the predecessors. He will be more arrogant than Nebuchadnezzar. He'll be more immoral than Belshazzar. His thirst for power will make Alexander the Great look like Alexander the Wimp. He'll speak the language of arrogance. He's going to blaspheme the Most High God. He will even attempt to alter the holy days and the traditions, which is a way of saying he will even attempt to set himself up to be worshipped and to have holy days dedicated to him. He will make himself, attempt to make himself the focus of human worship. Who could this be? Who could this be? There's only one answer, and it's not what was just said. <laughs> I mean, who am I to say that, I guess? But in scriptural terms, this is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. He is the most despicable, the most evil, the most deceptive, the most arrogant being to ever walk the face of the earth. And he will make war with saints, with God's people, especially the Jews. And according to this prophecy, he will succeed for a short time. For how long? A time, a times, and a half a time, which is one year, two years, and six months. So a total of three years. This parallels perfectly the identical prophecy from John the Apostle in the book of Revelation when he said they will tread the holy city underfoot for how long? 42 months. The heavenly history books, in other words, will retell and remember a short season of intense blasphemous conflict between the Antichrist and the saints of God centered in the geographical, not just symbolic, but the geographical city of Jerusalem. It's going to be ferocious, and for the evil one, it's going to be fatal. Once again, God tells us the end of the story. He says, but the court will sit just when we start to get anxious. We turn the page and look at the end of the story again. The court will sit. His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled in my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel can hear the gavel slam. He is told this is the end of the matter. In other words, nothing else is going to happen after this. This is the end of it. When God says it's the end, it's the end. It's the end of suffering. It's the end of disease. It's the end of earthquakes. It's the end of hunger. It's the end of the devil. It's the end of his blasphemy. It's the end of the Antichrist. They will be bound and thrown into the lake of fire, and a new kingdom will begin. And six times in the book of Revelation, we are told that this earthly kingdom established by Jesus after this time of tribulation will last a thousand years on this earth. And in that time, promises made to the children of Israel will be realized. And in that time, finally, the lion will lie down with the lamb, as Isaiah says. In other words, this planet will finally breathe a sigh of relief and we will be at peace. Now, the next two chapters 
8 and 9 in the book of Daniel are going to take us deeper into this. Chapter 8 is going to take us deeper into the study of the Antichrist. And I cannot wait for us to study chapter 8, not because I like to talk about the Antichrist, because I want to tell you how the church will be raptured into the heavens before the Antichrist begins his work. So if you're in Christ, you don't need to be afraid of the Antichrist. And I want to give you next week four reasons that you can believe that and you can sleep at peace. And then chapter 9, we're going to talk about the tribulation. That's what the chapter is about. One of the most important and strategic prophecies in all of the Bible is in the back half of chapter 9. It's not easy to understand, but if we can get our minds around it, we'll see what is truly the purpose of that tribulation and why God will be glorified at the end of it. Chapter 8, chapter 9 in the next two weeks. So where does that leave us today? I would encourage us to leave here with two thoughts. Let's be prepared. Let's be at peace. Let's be prepared and let's be at peace. When I was in that subway train in Brazil, I and my four friends, we were not at peace. Everyone else was. What was the difference between them and we five gringos? They knew how to read what? The map. So they were at peace. But those of us who did not know how to read the map, we were what? We were anxious and we were troubled. I would suggest to you that peace comes as you learn to read the map. Would you agree? And I would suggest to you that those ratios are inverted in our society. There was just a handful of us who were anxious in the subway car. Everybody else was at peace. But I would suggest to you there's only a handful of people on our planet who are truly at peace. And everybody else is anxious. Everyone's agitated. Everyone's troubled. And we got a long list of things that trouble us. Everybody's anxious. Everybody's troubled. Why? Because they haven't seen what you've seen. Take take heart. You've seen the end of the story. Jesus has said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Yeah, tribulation comes. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Daniel wants us to see that. God wanted Daniel to see that. I want all of us to see that. We can be at peace. The study of the four beasts is, in, is intended to make us aware, not make us anxious. Let's be at peace. We know how to read the map. But let's be prepared. Let's be prepared. We do not know when Jesus will resurrect his church. We do not know when he will trigger and what will trigger that exactly we do not know. We have some ideas, and we'll talk about those in two weeks, what will trigger that time of tribulation. But we do know this. He could come at any time. And I think that's good news. We can be prepared. When I was in high school, I played on the high school varsity football team. I made the team by the skin of my teeth. I was in that group of players that were just good enough to make the team, but not good enough to ever get on the field. (laughs) And so we sat on the sidelines during all the games, and the coach gave us a job. When fourth quarter began, our job was to run up and down the sidelines and yell, fourth quarter, fourth quarter, fourth quarter. Have you ever seen anybody do that on a football field? 
not a big job, but we took it seriously. The coach wanted us to remind the other players, hey, stay with it. We're almost at the end. The game's almost over. Stay focused. We're running out of minutes. I'm telling you, church, we're running out of minutes. There's more sand in the bottom of the hourglass than there is at the top. And I'm not sure there's very much in the top. We're in the fourth quarter. The two-minute warning has sounded. And for us, we can be at peace, but we can be prepared. And I want you to be prepared. Don't be surprised by the turn of events. Don't be surprised when you see things happen. And if you begin to see a 10-nation federation, and as you see the development and regathering of Jews in Israel, when your newspaper begins to read like prophecy in Scripture, then you know the end is near. Amen. Lord, help us now as we try to understand this prophecy from the book of Daniel. Heavenly Father, only you know, only you know the end of the matter. But Lord, you have been kind enough to us to help us see what the future holds. Thank you that you hold the future in your hands and that you hold your church as well. Through Christ we pray. And all the church said,